Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Lake Point family, and hey, let me just say, uh, excited to be with you uh, here today. Um, as of next week, my family will have been here six months. We're excited about that, and thank you, man. We're excited. Um, now, uh, the uh, the most common question that my family gets, by the way, if you're new, my name is Josh. I'm one of our senior pastors here, and we're new together, relatively new together. Uh, the, the most common question my family gets when uh, we're out and about is uh, the, people ask me, Josh, how is your family acclimating to Texas. Well, let me, let me show you how this is going so far. Uh, last week, uh, my family, my wife and uh, children traveled to Indiana to see Jana's family. They're from Indiana. And while uh, they were there, my oldest daughter, Eliana, who's eight, got in a fight, a little tizzy, with uh, our, uh, one of her cousins. And it was over a, uh, a controller from a video game. And so uh, and Eliana said, it's my turn. And he said, no, it's not. And she said, yes, it is. He said, no, it's not. And she said, yes, it is. And she just grabbed the controller away and she looked right at him and said, don't mess with Texas. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We've been here six months, so the Texas is running deep, y'all. I mean, it's settling right in. Well, hey, if you got your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter five. That's gonna be today. And uh, if you're here, you're in week three of a series that we're calling Uncommon, and here's why. Um, the Bible uses words to describe Christians, words like uh, aliens in the world, strangers, um, that we're exiles, that we're distinct from the world, uh, things like that. And uh, what the Bible and church history show us is that Christianity doesn't spread in spite of our differences from the world. Actually, what uh, they show us is that Christianity spreads because of our differences from the world. We're called to be salt and light in a world that is flavorless and dark. And so each week of the series we're doing is we're looking at one of the characteristics that makes Christianity and Christians uncommon um, in the world. And the one we're looking at today uh, is marriage. Now, really quick, this can become an emotional subject and, uh, and, a, and a, an emotionally volatile one. And so let me just go ahead and level the playing field really quick. And I'm gonna need your help here and at all of our campuses. Let me start with the ladies. Here in a second, wait, wait until I get to the end, I'll tell you when to raise your hand, okay? Ladies, women in the room, how many of you, when you were growing up, you fantasized about the perfect wedding? You had in your head this picture of, uh, you know, the perfect guy in his perfect outfit, perfect day, and that you'd have the perfect relationship, you'd eventually have the, you know, perfect little kids, and you kinda had the white picket fence in your mind, and really, that was the thing that your mind sort of drifted towards. Hands real high, help me out, all of our campuses, help me out, thank you, all right, look around, that's a lot, okay? Now, men in the room, how many of you had a very different fantasy as a teenager, okay? It's very, yeah, wait, yeah, I'm not even asking you to raise your hands yet, some of you are jumping the gun, you're like, yep, 
Yep, that's me, bro. All right. For you, it was like, man, I'm going to get married and it's just going to be steamy for 50 years. You know, she's going to walk around the house even when it's just us. And she, even around the house, she's going to be wearing things that are tight down here and high up here and low, you know, up here, that kind of thing. We'll be in the bedroom all the time, that kind of thing. How many of you, that was your, that was very dear? Okay, that's right. Hands everywhere. Now, can we all participate together? How many of you are still waiting for your dreams to come true? Man, that's right, man. We're all, all in the same boat. Well, what I want to do today is really interesting. The Bible has so much to say about marriage. In fact, it's really interesting. You can read the Bible like this. The Bible begins with a wedding between Adam and Eve, and it ends with a wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church, in a very real sense The Bible is the story of a wedding and a marriage, and the Bible has a lot to say about redemption that can take place in our marriages. And so I wanna do that. I wanna read a passage today that shows us how Christian marriages, they are, they're very uncommon. And let me give a quick disclaimer. Uh, I'm getting ready to read a passage that is very hotly debated. Um, One pastor said uh, this is a passage that should have, uh, that ought to have a, a fuse coming out of it. Because every time you read it, you know, things get explosive. And let me just say, if you're not a Christ follower, you're not sort of an apprentice of Jesus yet, when I read this, if you could help me by allowing me the next few minutes to explain what I'm about to read, because you might have some misconceptions about what you're about to hear. So I'm I'm just asking you for a few minutes, all right? So if you got your Bibles, Ephesians 5, pick up with me in verse 21, here's what it says. It starts with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands, as you do to the Lord, all right? Now hang on, everybody calm down, I'll get there. We'll explain this together. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ. You're gonna notice that, uh, that pattern. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, here's that pattern, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Some of your Bibles will say, to present her in splendor, I love that language, without stain, wrinkle, or any blemish, holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, nobody ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church four members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must watch watch this. Watch these two words. Circle them in your Bible. Love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, let me start right here, and let me tell you how this sermon's gonna work. I'm gonna zoom way out and talk about what the structure of the book of Ephesians tells us about marriage, and then I'm gonna zoom in, talk about the shape of marriage that we get from Ephesians 5, and then we're gonna zoom all the way into verse 33 and talk about some very practical things, okay? So let me zoom all the way out. Like a good builder, what I gotta do is I gotta blast some things out before I build some things up, okay? Now, here's what I gotta blast out. The structure of Ephesians explodes a myth that almost everybody in contemporary American culture believes. And if you believe this myth, it can cause incredible damage if you're single to your future marriage. And if you believe it and you're married, it can cause incredible damage to your current marriage. And it's the myth of the one. The idea that there's one person out there that's designed just for you, and if you find that person, then a great marriage comes about a lot like a chemical reaction. Just get 
the right person with the right person, the destined one, get them together. And then, you know, boom, the explosion happens. Great marriage just sort of naturally comes out of getting the right people in the right place, okay? Now, that's a myth of the one, all right? If you're unfamiliar with this myth, great example of this, when I was in college, there was a movie uh, that came out, Jerry Maguire. You guys remember the movie, Jerry Maguire? You guys remember there's a scene in the movie where uh, Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, a Christian scientist and a totally normal person, <clears throat> are in an ho- uh, elevator together? And, uh, and uh, they're there, and there's a couple in the elevator that's making out. And, you know, they're like, oh, you know, whatever. And uh, eventually, the couple pulls apart, and uh, one of the, uh, the people that were kissing, they sign to the other one something because they're deaf. And Renee Zellweger just melts. She's like, oh, you know. And Tom Cruise asks, you know, what was that? And she said, what she signed was, you complete me. Okay? It's like, oh, that's amazing. All right, now, fast forward to the end of the movie. And Tom Cruise, you remember, end of the movie, uh, he slides into this room with his briefcase, says hello to everybody, and he throws it down very emotionally, and he walks in and he says, tonight, to Renee Zellweger, tonight was a very big night. It was huge. Tonight was life-changing. Tonight was the greatest night for our little experiment, this company they started, that we've ever had. We just signed the biggest contract that will change our lives. And then he says, but it wasn't nearly as good as it could have been uh, because you weren't there. And I couldn't feel your touch and hear your voice and see your face. (laughs) And then remember what he does is he puts his briefcase down and he signs to Renee Zellweger. He says, you complete me. Right, you remember the movie where Renee Zellweger is like, uh, you know, she freaks out. When I watched that, you remember uh, in the movie theater, everybody went, oh, yeah, that's, that's what everybody did. And you remember when he does that, Renee Zellweger, she just goes, shut up, shut up. You had me at hello. You remember that, right? Okay, now how was my performance there? Was it okay? All right, thank you, all right, thanks. Well, in the, when I was in college and I saw that in the theater, everybody in the theater out loud went, oh, And I went, that is such a pile of garbage, you know? (laughs) Because it is, this is the myth, and here's how this myth works. There's two pieces to the myth of the one. One, there's one person out there designed just for you. And two, if you find that right person, then it's like two pieces of a puzzle, and it will result in completion, happiness, and bliss. Now, Christians believe this myth all the time. I'm gonna say some things that are really unpopular to say in Christian circles. I'm just teaching the Bible here. Christians believe this myth that there's a one out there that's supposed to be our first priority, the number one thing in our life, and if they are, they'll complete us. Uh, And you hear this when Christians say things like, and they're trying to be godly, they say things like, man, you know, my marriage is my first priority, my one, okay? Now, have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed how often Jesus is combating the idea that your spouse is supposed to be your one or your first priority? Have you ever noticed this? So think about this, in Luke 11, There was a time where Jesus was preaching and a woman in the crowd shouted out in the middle of his preaching. She said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, can I just say this? I like when you guys shout back to me, you know, amen, preach pastor, you better preach, that kind of thing. Here's what I don't want. Blessed are the breasts at which you nursed, okay? That's weird and creepy, so don't do that to me. But somebody did that to Jesus. And you remember what Jesus did when that woman shouted at him, he said, he rebuked her. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And Jesus was saying the highest blessing in life isn't family, it's in the word. 
and communion with God. Okay, remember, I'll give you another one. You guys remember Mark chapter 12? It says this, it says, and the Sadducees, a group of Bible teachers, the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, which is why they're so Sadducee, you know, so you gotta get that in there. <laughs> they asked him a question. As a teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, now here's a little word, word problem for Jesus. Teacher Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now Jesus, once upon a time there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died, left no offspring. Second took her, died, no offspring. Third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection Jesus. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as wife. Now that sounds like the lead into a Mormon joke to me, but that's not what was going on. Jesus, guys, I'm having fun today. I'm having fun today, okay? Jesus says, listen to what he says. He says, uh, he says, you are wrong, knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. Did you see what he said? Did you know that in heaven there won't be any marriage? Not one person in heaven will be married. Why? Because God is ultimate, not marriage. And you can be satisfied in God without a marriage. Guys, think about this. Remember, never forget this. We worship a guy who died single. Remember that. I'll give you one last one. Remember, uh, Jesus one time said, if anybody follows me, they must hate their father, mother, brother, sisters, even his own wife. And if anybody doesn't do that, they can't follow me. Now, do you guys understand what's going on? You even see it right here in the book of Ephesians. Think about this. So I told you, zoom out to the structure of Ephesians. Think, zoom out. For the first five chapters of Ephesians, we get instructions on our relationship with God. Then after our relationship with God, instructions on our relationship with our spouse. Then after our instructions with our spouse, uh, instructions with our children. Then after that, instructions uh, for relationship with our employers. Now do you see what's happening here? Let me give you a principle and then let me unpack it. What the Bible's teaching is that, listen to me, your spouse is not your one, your spouse is your two. And if you make your spouse your one, you won't just ruin your relationship with God, you'll actually ruin your relationship with your spouse, okay? Now, here's what I'm driving at, if that doesn't make sense. Here's what I'm driving at. Uh, if you believe this myth of the one, your marriage is supposed to be your first priority, that's a person who will complete you and make you happy, that will do incredible damage to you if you're single on your future marriage, if you're married on your current marriage. Here's how this works, very quickly. If you are single, and believe this myth, it will shift your focus from becoming to finding. Now here's what I mean. If you believe the myth of the one, that there's one person out there designed just for you, then you'll think your job is to find that person. But watch this, the Bible's emphasis for your life is for you to become the right person. Here's what I mean if this isn't making sense. When I was in college, I uh, discipled groups of high school boys at a camp week by week, and inevitably, you know, they'd start talking about marriage at some point. Here's what I would always do. I'd say, hey guys, describe for me the woman that you wanna marry. And they'd always describe this amazing woman. They'd say, oh, I want her to be accepting and compassionate. I want her to have the beauty of Selena Gomez and the godliness of Mother Teresa and the sense of humor of Zoe Deschanel, you know, all these things. And they described this incredible, amazing woman. And then what I would always do is I'd look right back at them and I'd say, bro, what you gotta understand is the girl you just described is never gonna marry you because you play 10 hours of Fortnite a day and you don't have a job. <laughs> See, this, that's how this works. Let me explain how this works. Now, let me, let me explain this real quick. The, if the Bible doesn't say anything about how to find this one person out there that's designed for you. It doesn't say anything about that. 
It says tons about how to become the right person. Restated, if you ask the Bible the question, how do I find the one, the right person for me to marry, there's almost nothing in the Bible. On the other hand, if you ask the Bible the question, how do I become the right person, every page of the Bible answers your question. Here's the Bible's assumption. If you become the right person, you'll attract the right person. Let me, let me restate that, okay? For if you're single, here's what the Bible's teaching. Become the person you're looking for is looking for. I know that's confusing. Become the type of person that the type of person you're looking for is looking for, all right? Now, let me move on. For married people, if you believe this myth, the myth of the one, here's what will happen. You'll spend your entire marriage expecting your spouse to do for you, uh, expecting your spouse to do something for you they can't do for you. You'll expect them to do that. Now, let me explain this real quick. So, have you ever noticed this? Got a little red solo cup uh, sermon illustration here. Uh, have you ever noticed how often the Bible uh, compares our souls to a cup? You know, uh, David says in the Psalms, he just says it outright, man, my cup overflows. Talks about the Lord is my portion that satisfies me, that fills me. Jesus talks about how, man, it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. You know, out of your, uh, you know, out of your, will flow waters of life, overflowing water. So the Bible's constantly comparing your soul to a cup. Now, what you gotta understand is, you are going to live in the relationships in your life in one of two ways. You will either live for-filling in your relationships or you will live from-filling. Now, let me explain that, okay? What most people do is they move out into the relationships in their life expecting people to fill the cups of their souls. So they walk into every relationship going, will you make me happy? Will you take away my loneliness? Will you ease my insecurities? Will you please be for me? Will you give me peace? Will you give me comfort? Will you give me safety? And they feel like that in all their relationships. I need, 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 and it's never enough. Let me just say this to you. If you spend your whole life trying, if you try to fill your cup, if, let me make sure I get, let me just read it from my notes here. If you look to empty people to fill you, you will always be empty. If you look to empty people to fill you, you will always be empty. Now here's what happens. If you're that type of person who moves out into relationships living fulfilling, here's what your marriage is gonna feel like. You're not loving enough, you're not enough time, not enough affirmation, not enough security, more support, more encouragement, more sex. You're not making me happy enough. You're, you're not taking away my loneliness. You're not erasing my insecurities. You see, that'll happen if you are asking your two to do for you what only the one can do for you. That's what's gonna happen, all right? Now watch this, that's good. I like this service, y'all are fun, all right? Now, the other way to live is if we understand that our spouse is not our one, our spouse is our two, and we approach God first with the cup of our souls, well then watch this, guys, the Bible says that his right hand are pleasures evermore. The Bible says that the Lord is our portion, uh, David says, man, when I have you, I shall not want. Jesus says, man, you come to me and out of you will flow rivers of living water. Uh, all these things, you'll be satisfied. And so then, if you're getting filled in your relationship with God, who can actually satisfy you, then you get to move out into your relationships. You get to move out into your marriage living from filling. And you can pour into other people the spiritual resources, the emotional energy, the spiritual vitality that you have, that you've gotten from the Lord into the people around you. So you can walk into your spouse's life and you have resources to give encouragement, 
to pour out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because why, why, here's why. Because you put God in the one spot and your spouse in the two spot and so you had something to give. Those are the only two ways that you're gonna live. What you gotta understand, think about what this passage says in Ephesians 5. It says the two become one, it does not say the halves become whole. If two halves walk into a marriage, two halves don't make a whole, they make hell. That's what happens, okay? So that's number one. Now watch this, let me get a little closer and let's talk about the shape of marriage from Ephesians 5. Let's talk about these really fun, popular concepts of headship and submission. Can we talk about this? Okay, now, real quick, a lot of people uh, bring a lot of baggage to those words. So let me, let me kinda help you out here. There's an old preacher story about a man that uh, went to the doctor with his wife, he was very sick. When they got there, the doctor looked the man over and, uh, and uh, brought him back out to the waiting room and then asked the wife to come back into his office and close the door behind her. And the wife said, well, hey, doc, tell me what's wrong. And the doctor said, well, hey, uh, good news, your husband's gonna be okay, but in order to live, he needs absolutely no stress whatsoever. He said, every morning he needs to wake up to a hot breakfast prepared by you. Never under any circumstance ask him to help around the house. Every morning he needs to, uh, every evening he needs to come home to a home cooked meal. Make sure the house is spotless at all times. He can't have any chaos in his life. If he, if he has any desires for marital intimacy, tend to his every need. Be in a good mood and pleasant at all times. Don't bother him with any of your problems or any of your emotions. Do this and your husband will live. And the woman walked right back out into the waiting room with her husband, and her husband said, what did the doctor say? And she said, he said, you're gonna die. <laughs> said, you're gonna die. That's what, right now. Here's why, you know, that story's funny, but it's also, it's, uh, the story's a little sad, because a lot of people, that is honestly the picture they get in their head when they hear words like that, headship and submission. They get this picture of what the Bible is calling, or Christians are calling people to do, is for a wife to, be a doormat, do all these things, serve the husband, whole life revolves around him. So can I start here by saying some things that this passage doesn't mean, what submission doesn't mean. Ladies, it doesn't mean that you agree on everything and you leave your brain at the altar. That's not what the Bible's calling you to do. Think about the most submissive person in the entire Bible was Jesus Christ himself. How did Jesus submit to his heavenly father? Do you remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out with deep emotion and radical honesty. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And he cried and he sweat blood. But then he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. It doesn't mean that you agree on everything, leave your brain at the altar. Number two, it doesn't mean you don't try to influence your husband. In fact, men, you, what you have to understand is the Bible says that your wife has been given to you, designed to be a helper. Do you know how you need help sometimes? You need her perspective, her wisdom, her intellect, you need that. Number three, ladies, this passage is not saying that women are weak. In fact, uh, earlier I was listening to a sermon for, from a guy named David Platt who leads the International Mission Board. The International Mission Board sends tens of thousands of uh, missionaries all across the globe. In this sermon, David Platt pointed out that in countries where there is persecution unto death, so fatal level persecution, in those countries, the applications to become missionaries in those countries Women applications outnumber men applications by a ratio of seven to one to those countries. Listen, our women, godly, spirit-filled women, they ain't weak, and they're not lacking courage. So what you gotta understand is that that's not what this is calling you to. Number four, what this passage doesn't mean is that you are called to follow your husband into sinful or abusive patterns. 
Never are you called to put the will of your husband ahead of the will of Jesus. See, what is it that this passage says the woman is called, the wife is called to submit to? She's submitting to the presence of Jesus in her husband. And how does the husband, how is he called to lead? Like Jesus, who this passage said, laid down his life for the good of his bride, the church. So listen, let me say it like this. If a husband ever coercively yells at his wife, woman, submit, she should reply right back to him, man, die. Because that's what this passage says he's called to do. Last, this doesn't mean you have no identity or calling outside of your husband. Let me give an incredible example of this. That's not what the Bible's saying. In the book of Judges, do you remember that there was a woman named Deborah who actually led the entire nation of Israel for a portion of Israel's history? She was kind of the functional president. What's interesting about the book of Judges is every time Deborah refers to herself in the book of Judges, do you know what she calls herself? Never just Deborah. She always calls herself Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth. Do you know why she does that? She was saying, when I walk out of this door, I am a strong, empowered, intelligent, courageous woman that is leading an entire nation. And when I come home in this door, I gladly come under the loving leadership of my husband. That's what she was saying here. Now, let me explain what this is. Submission in Ephesians 5, here's what it means. It means making space for your husband to lead, respecting and encouraging him in a way that calls him up into leadership. One of my favorite examples of this, I've got a total man crush on a pastor named Tim Keller that planted a church in New York City. Uh, I listen to and read everything the guy writes or says. Uh, Tim, Ke Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, they wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage a few years ago. And uh, Kathy Keller asked to write the chapter on headship and submission in the book. Now, what you gotta know is, first of all, these are people who were born and raised and live in uh, downtown New York City. Number two, Tim Keller is an Ivy League uh, graduate, very intelligent man. But number three, I've actually spent time with people who have spent time with Tim and Kathy personally. And I've heard multiple people say that Kathy is actually the intellectually sharper of the two, which is startling. Now this is what she says in this chapter, okay? This is what she says. She describes it like this. She says, it means that in matters of disagreement, I choose to yield to him the deciding vote. I get a vote and he gets a vote and then he gets the deciding vote. And she gave the example of their decision to move away from Philadelphia to New York City to plant their church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And this is what she said. She said, after praying for a month, they prayed and fasted for a month about that decision. And after the end of the month, Tim felt like God was saying, yes, go and plant. And Kathy felt like God was saying, no, don't and stay. And so they had a decision to make. But watch this, they had to make a decision because to not make a decision would be to functionally decide against. So Tim conceded, he said, hey, if you don't wanna go, we're not gonna go. Here's what Kathy did, her response, oh no you don't, you are not putting this on me. God put this responsibility on you and you've gotta bear the responsibility for this decision and bear the burden if it's the wrong decision. In the words of uh, one of my favorite preachers who's also in the Dallas area, a man named Tony Evans, Tony Evans says it like this, spiritual headship is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man. That's what he's saying. <laughs> um, can I just, um, let me have a moment real quick of, uh, of some self-confession and vulnerability. If I get emotional at any spot in the sermon, it's gonna be this spot. Uh, man, I, I need to say something to you about this passage. Um, I grew up in a uh, you know, Bible-believing, amazing Christian home and Bible-teaching church. So I grew up around this passage. 
And uh, really, where I started trying to figure out what this passage meant, I was 19 years old, going to a Bible college, I called it bridal college, <laughs> and uh, you know, all that stuff. And so where I was hashing out what words like headship, submission, helpmate, I was hashing out what those words meant sitting around a dorm room with other 19-year-old single guys. Can I just submit to you, that's probably not the best place to figure out what those words mean in your future life. And so what happened to me is when I was gaining a vision for marriage, what I was doing is I was taking all of these selfish, immature, 19-year-old attitudes about marriage and women and what I wanted my life to be like, and then I loaded those unbiblical, immature assumptions into the Bible's words, and I formed kind of a view of marriage. And I would never, I've always been a guy who's kind of type A, driven, I like building and achieving things. And I never would have said this out loud, but, but here's what I really believed in my heart of hearts. I really believed, hey, I'm a guy with a vision, and so I need to find a woman who will help me accomplish the vision that I have. And so when I got into our marriage, what I did is I used these words. I used words like helpmate and headship and submission to really curb all of Jana's God-given dreams and talents and her leadership urges. And I really did that for about 10 years. And again, I never would have said this out loud, but in my heart, what I really believed was that Jana's only calling was to help me accomplish my calling. Now, what you gotta know is uh, that ain't Jana. <laughs> uh, if you're familiar with it, Jana's an Enneagram 8. She's like a challenger. Jana powers up in conflict, which is real fun. And uh, she, uh, <laughs> Jana, you know, she graduated top of her class. Jana was class president, homecoming queen, president of her sorority in college. Guys, Jana organized a Ross Perot neighborhood campaign when she was eight years old. Okay, that's all you gotta know about Jana. Welcome to Texas, you know, that's, that's all you gotta know about Jana. And what I did was, uh, I, for 10 years of our marriage, is I wielded passages like this to squash Jana's dreams. Uh, early in our marriage, when I was going to seminary, Jana said, hey man, Josh, I would really like to go to seminary. I really feel a ministry calling too. And back then, like I said to Jana, well babe, you know, really we need to align our lives to my calling and, uh, and that, that needs to be our, our priority. And so, man, now it's not the time. And years ago, I, I came across this passage and uh, I read it with fresh eyes and, and the Lord cut me to the heart. And what I realized was this passage says that Jesus laid himself down to present his bride in splendor. And what I had been doing is I had been asking Jana to lay herself down to present me in my splendor. And I had to come to her uh, with tears and I just had to say, babe, I'm so sorry. I, I've been doing this for so long. And I had to come to her, I had this moment of realization reading this passage where I realized, oh, my job is to have a vision for and to help Jana reach her full redemptive potential. And so then I came to Jana and I started asking questions like, babe, what do you wanna do? What ministry do you wanna build? Let me help you find your voice. Let me help build you up into what I know you can become. And you see, Husbands in the room, what you need to understand is this passage says that we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church and laid himself down, to, down for her. And husbands, here's what that means. It means in your family you do wear a crown, but it is primarily a crown of thorns. That's what that means, okay? So this is the shape. Now can I get real practical? Let me get real practical for a second here. If you look at verse 33, it gives two very specific commands to husbands and wives. And what it says is, it says, wives, respect your husbands 
but it says, husbands, love your wives. Now, let me ask you this, why the different commands to husbands and wives? Does that mean that husbands only have to love their wives, they don't have to respect them? Obviously not. Does that mean that wives only have to respect their husbands, they don't have to love them? Obviously not, so what's going on here? Watch this. The Bible is teaching, listen, that men and women are equals, but not equivalents. Equal, but with different keys to their hearts. So here's what the Bible is doing. It's giving you the respective keys to your spouse's heart. So I'm gonna land the plane being really practical. Let me talk to the men in the room really quick with something very practical, men. The Bible is calling you to pour love into the heart of your spouse. Here's a rule, men, husbands, that you need to master. Here's the rule. Every single time that you think anything good about your wife, say it out loud every time. The book of James talks about how our tongues are a rudder that can steer us. That means we can steer the direction of our marriage with our tongue. So every time you think something good, say it. Example, in my life, you know, uh, earlier this week, I needed to text Jana, hey babe, left the house thinking about what a great mom you are. Our girls are so, so lucky to have you as a mom. Or when you see your spouse working hard at the house or in their career, you need to be the one husbands that say, hey babe, you are such a hard worker. We are blessed by the work of your hands. When she's walking away, don't be afraid to say things like, babe, view sure is good from back here. You know, whatever you need to say. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, every time you think something good, say it every single time. Now, let me help you out and give you a tip, husbands. Let me give you a tip. Here's a tip. The tip is to do the opposite of what I just did. Okay, so here's the tip. The tip is you need to get great at giving your wife, listen, non-sexual affection. Now, some of you are like, what's that? I don't know what that means. What does that mean, okay? Here's what that means. Non-sexual affection, here's what it is. It's affection that's not sexual. That's what you gotta get good at. Now, ladies, what you gotta understand is if you've been married for a day, you already know this, is that a guy can make literally anything sexual. If Janice says to me, hey, Josh, we need to get the, you know, the tires rotated on the car, I'm gonna say, hey, babe, I'd like to rotate your tires, you know? <laughs> Hey, Josh, lawn needs mowed. I'd like to mow your lawn, babe. You know that kind of thing? That's always gonna happen. Now, wives, what you gotta understand, let me let you in on something. That's, every, that's not just your husband. That's every guy. So listen, let me help you out. He's not a pervert. He's a guy. That, that's what's happening. All right, let me help you out. Now, husbands, here, here's, let me help you out. You can do this by mastering this sentence. I love you because. Master that sentence. I love you because. Babe, I love you because you work so hard for our family. I love you because you are just such a positive attitude in our house. Babe, I love you because whatever, I'll give you an example in, in my own life. Uh, texted Jana earlier this week. Babe, I love you because every time I call, you just seem happy to talk to me on the phone, and I just love having a wife that's happy to talk to me. I love you because, master that sentence. Now, ladies, the Bible is calling you wives to respect your husbands, okay? Now, here's the objection you might have. You may be going, yeah, Josh, but I'll respect him when he becomes respectable. Well, can I just say something to you very humbly? That's never gonna work. That's never gonna work. Listen, he's always becoming what you see him as. That's how it works. With your words, wives, give him a crown and he'll become a king. So for instance, don't do this. I hear this all the time from women in churches. They'll grab me in the lobby or after an event I speak at and they'll say, man, my husband, he's just not a spiritual leader. 
He's just not a spiritual leader like you. Josh, I just wish he was a spiritual leader like you. Well, hey, just a second. Let me tip you in on something. Hey, you don't see Pastor Josh at home. Pastor Josh is not all you think he might be cracked up to be. That's not how it works. But listen, if your husband hears you say, I wish you were a spiritual leader, do you know what he's never gonna do? Spiritually lead. Because he's already heard from you, he doesn't have what it takes. So listen, let me land the plane right here. Jan and I, we are bad at a whole lot of things. Let me tell you something that Jan is very, very good at. Jan is good at this. You guys have heard me talk before about, um, I, I've always had a little anxiety and, uh, and insecurity around my preaching. Um, this is a picture that my eight-year-old daughter took in my office of what Jana has done for me every week that I've preached for 14 years. Before I preach, Jana comes to my office or before I leave the house, and Jana grabs me and uh, she prays over me before I preach every single time. And she prays over me words of encouragement and blessing and anointing. God, thank you so much for the gifts that you've given Josh. You use him so powerfully. Let your word be caught up within him. You know, I could, just, I could pray Jana's prayers. And she does that for me every single week before I preach. And here's what else she does. Wherever I've been, Jana always attends the first service wherever I preach. So 6 p.m., Rockwall, Saturday night. Jana attends that service. And no matter how good or how bad the sermon is, as soon as it's over, Jana beelines right out to the lobby. And she gives me a big old hug, and here's what she does every time. She looks me right in the face and she says, Josh, that was amazing. That was amazing. She says things like, I can't believe that God brought that message from you. That was amazing, Josh. God has given you such gifts. You know, and she'll just go on and on and on about what she sees God doing in my life and through my ministry. And listen, wives, what you gotta understand, this is how God has designed the heart of a husband. Encouragement in the mouth of a woman is strong in the heart of a man. And what happens to me is this, is, is after a message, I don't care what any of you thought about the message, Jana thought it was amazing. <laughs> you see, Jana thought it was amazing. And it just does something to me. And listen, you gotta know that that's how it works in marriage. God's designed it like that. And so listen, can I do this? Can I pray that God will begin to do maybe a renewing work in our marriages here or in our future marriages here? I just wanna pray for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And, um, and Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for being the all-satisfying one. Thank you that you are so good that we can be satisfied with you and without a spouse. And so, Father, would you please satisfy the deep places of our souls. God, make us people who run to you for living water and nobody else. God, I pray for every person here. Your word says that, that you save the crushed in spirit and that you are near to the brokenhearted. And so, God, would you do that right now? I pray that your spirit would be a ministering spirit to everybody who's discouraged or feels hopeless. God, I pray that you would give hope and a future. Breathe that into our hearts if we're discouraged or faithless. And I pray that you would help us believe down deep in our souls that we can have a new marriage with the same spouse because of the transforming power of God in our lives. Father, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. Please transform us degree by degree into having uncommon marriages that glory Jesus. We love you. We pray those things in your name. Amen and amen. 
thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. Lake